Hello and welcome to On the Road to Racial Reconciliation podcast. Here are your hosts, Eddie Johnson and John Lewis. Enjoy. You came back and we love you for it. On the Road to Racial Reconciliation podcast with Eddie Johnson and John Lewis. John, last episode, you said, you you challenged me. I took it as a challenge. You said, what are you? What sports reference are you going to do for episode six? Well, John, this is our LeBron James with the Heat episode. This is our Bill Russell with the legendary championship dynasty, Boston Celtics. This is our championship episode number six. How are you, my friend? I'm good, man. I, I want to just say I'm just I, I don't want to say I'm I'm six six six, but uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm ready to go. Let's on number six. Let's do it. Ready for number six? Yes, so good. Hey, we we we've covered a lot of ground. Not a lot of scripture, but we've covered a lot of ground uh, in this conversation that we've been having with our friends Grant, Nate, Ilya, Kira, and we so far. Let, let's just give um, our friends, our listeners, a little recap. Uh, we've talked about Jesus, how Jesus is central to this uh, idea of reconciliation, that that is the, I mean, that, I mean, that's God's reconciliation plan for us, right? So he should be our reconciliation plan for each other. Um, we went into that and we went from Jesus and we went to talking about that this is a hard conversation. Jesus had to go into Samaria, John chapter four, that's our, our, our key scripture. And Jesus had to go to Samaria. He did the hard thing. He 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 went through. Uh, excuse me. I'm jumping ahead because that's how much we covered. And he had to. He had to go. He had to go. He had to do the hard thing. He had to go to the hard place. Right. He met the person. He had to go through Samaria. He took the hard road to make this happen. And um, that's just amazing. That we are really just a small number of verses into this chapter of john chapter four and we well, were actually just on the first verse and, and we are i guess that is true right there we're just 4, on the first 4. verse we are going through john 4 4 uh, yeah. word at a time and so we've been the last couple of weeks we've been uh, uh talking about that last word of john 4 4 eddie which is samaria that jesus yeah. had to go through a region between israel and judah called mm-hmm. samaria and, yeah. and we we and we now we did say that relationships is key to this process. If we're going to become aware and acknowledge and action, you know, Natasha Morrison's process that she introduced mm-hmm. us to, that it's gonna it's gonna embed itself in the real relationships. But I think we have to say that before you can really uh, enter into a you know well into a particular racial uh, a racial relationship, it's important to know the big picture. You know, we, and rather than starting with the individual, we start with the group. I call it the we before me. That, could yeah. that preach, bro? Could that preach, you know? That could so, preach, John. That could before preach. Jesus went to the well and to yeah. the Samaritan, he went to the place called Samaria. And so I think yeah. the order really matters. Like, I know if, if you introduce your podcast, you said, hello, hey, welcome back. This is Johnson Eddie with Lewis John. We probably would get some curious responses from our listeners right we definitely would yes but, but I, we might do that <laughs> <laughs> but you do that in any other country i've you know i've traveled a little bit the eastern countries a lot of these countries their last name comes first yeah because mm-hmm. they know i'm part of a family before yeah. i'm an individual so my yeah. grandson that was just born 
he was a Lewis before he was Ezekiel, before he came out of his mother's womb. And so this whole idea of we before me, it's baked into scripture, Eddie, like in Mm -hmm. the garden. I mean, you had the me of Adam, but he was not, he was not the image of God until he Mm -hmm. was with the we of Eve, you know, and before Moses, you had the Hebrews in Egypt. Before you had King David, you know, you had the nation of Israel, of which he was to lead. Before you have Jesus, Eddie, you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You have the we yeah. before the me. Yeah, and it carries totally. all uh-huh. the way through the New Testament. And for a lot of folks, this is really an important foundation because we tend to see things through the eyes of the individual first. Yeah. So when we get to racism, Eddie, we are talking first and foremost about a corporate reality. Yeah. a collective sin and that's mm-hmm. often not you know when we preach the gospel at camps yeah. with young people a lot of times we talk about their personal sin and people then can say when they get to this conversation Eddie well I'm not personally a racist I don't yeah. do those kind of behaviors personally so it's really just about all these individual decisions but the reality is in the scripture corporate sin is dominant and it's pervasive mm-hmm. and it yeah. matters to Jesus You know, you think about Noah, that wasn't a personal, that was a whole group of people that were sinning. The Tower of Babel was a whole group of people that wanted to get to God. Slavery in Egypt, Baal worship. Then you get to the prophets, another example, corporate sin. They're not saying, hey, Sam, you have an issue. The prophets were saying, Israel, you got an issue. Assyria, Babylon, other nations. And so when you get to the Lord's Prayer and you hear something like, forgive us our sins. Yeah. Forgive us this day our you realize how deeply embedded this idea of corporate sin and, uh, and corporate realities in, in the scripture. Yeah, so. I know. Well, you know, you, you said the identity of our, la- or our, our last name is, it speaks to our identity, our family. You know, my last name, Johnson, son of John, right? That's the his- right. history, right? <laughs> it's to connect you who you're, to who you're connected with. And, you know, we've been talking about in the last couple of weeks is, is really that, you know, we talked about, that um, from our uh, great influence um, from uh, Brian Stevenson, almost blanked on his name there, um, that, uh, that we, the reality is that there are historical realities, there are assumptions, and there's institutional sin, right? There, there's been problems. We have built a racial problem that has come from these assumptions and these attitudes and these feelings and has created institutional problems, institutional um uh, sins and institutional things that we now are dealing with today. Before we jumped on this pod, we were just kind of going over our notes and let's bring this home to exactly to our neighborhoods, John, right? Where we live. So we live in the greater Tacoma, Washington area. You're in the part university place Fircrest. I'm the part Lakewood Stillicum. Um, but the greater Tacoma area is a very diverse area. Yep. incredibly diverse. And we have one of the largest military bases um, in our community. So we are diverse in a lot of ways, shapes and forms. Uh, but the reality is, is that if you're in Tacoma, there is a clear delineation between the east side of Tacoma and the rest of Tacoma, right? There is a clear, I mean, even for myself, someone who I'm a, I'm a person of color and I've I've been around a lot of parts of Tacoma. You've lived here for, for, for a long time as well, John. Like, I just know that I just, 
don't go to the east side very often that that's a that's a planned trip that's a one-stop shop because if there's not the um intersection there's not the um um the overlap between the rest of tacoma and the east side of tacoma you got you just take the freeway to puyallup you don't go through the east side you to don't get have to, to go yeah you can avoid it completely and there's also a reality where i live in lakewood uh, where I live in Lakewood, there is kind of the eastern side of Lakewood when there's a large road south to come away that kind of splits the more affluent areas. Now, here's the thing. This is what I like to tell people about the community I live in, John. It's called Lakewood because it's nothing but lakes and trees, okay? And the closer you live to a lake, here's the reality about our community, the better and the more well-off you you are. And literally, when you cross the, the train tracks or you cross out to come away, you're in poor areas, areas where if you're familiar with Tacoma and Lakewood, you know 96th Street, you know the Drake Apartments, um, you know um, South Tacoma and Lakewood where they kind of overlap, where uh, John, you were even saying as we jumped on the 70% rentals, absentee landlords. And, and as you and I were talking, and, and today's pod's about the institutions, we, we kind of started fleshing things out. And the reality is, is there are historical assumptions and then based off of those that are institutions that are built. And then when you let that perpetuate throughout history, areas and communities and people, hello, John, <laughs> develop a reputation that right. now they are something other than uh, than what their God-given and God creation uh, should be. And we have done that in our communities. We have done that to people groups. We have done that where like in Samaria, Right. It perpetuated over time. Samaria and Samaritans became something other. There was a reputation. And quite frankly, um, I'm not to spoil uh, your and Korn's interview, but there was a reputation both ways between Jews and Samaritans. Right. And I think what we got to realize is uh, I, 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 told, I talked to a friend uh, less than a year ago, and um, he's someone who's in the church planting world. And I won't, I won't say any names. But I, he told me of three churches that um, were in East Tacoma, South Tacoma, South, that kind of general moving that direction in our community, um, that they all failed. And you know why they failed? They failed for two reasons. And there's more than just these three, but these are three that we were talking about. They failed because, number one, people didn't want to move to those communities, and they didn't want to live in those communities, and they didn't want to give money to support ministry in those communities. That's a reality all right. And you wonder if the Holy Spirit is just calling more people to hip neighborhoods and places yeah. like you all up, or is it also just the, the reputation and the institutional realities that are shaping our expectations and our assumptions about where God's calling the church? And that's, that's a great example, Eddie, of how, how even in the church we can get mixed up, you know, the leading of the, the Spirit of God versus just being shaped, right, by these realities. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, so part of what we wanted to do, you know, and, and kind of the history of our dance together is we're just going to start uh, embed ourselves in the in the woman at the well story and then mm -hmm. you know, jump out to our guest and, and more of what you want to share. So I just wanted to highlight uh, three realities that were institutionalized. Everybody knew it. about it. Everybody participated in, it in the story of Jesus. The disciples didn't question it. Jesus was familiar with it. But for us just to be aware of how radical Jesus's relationship and conversation is, is to first immerse ourselves really briefly, but in these three, these three institutional rallies, the first was worship, you know, so one of the things that they did is that each group had 
um, had their own place of worship. Instead of coming to the Jewish temple, the Samaritans were excluded, so they had to build their own place of worship. So that means that all the pilgrimages and all the rituals were completely separate. You know, you've heard mm-hmm. yeah. the, the most segregated hour. You know, <laughs> you I know, just was I just was highlighting that in my notes. <laughs> it's so true. Keep going, John. Yeah. And so same ideas that you have different buildings, you just you just institutionalize our separation. The other one would just be the laws. So yeah. the Jews came out and said, ah, you Samaritans, you know, you're impure. So you, you, your laws don't count. You're, you, can't, you can't keep the Mosaic law. So the Samaritans mm-hmm. said, well, if you're not going to validate, you know, let us participate in your you know, Mosaic law experience and we're going to create yeah. our own. Yeah. And so then, so then, then, then the laws began to move towards, oh, well, the Jews said, we're going to make it a law that you're unclean. You think about this segregation, mm-hmm. for example, yeah. in the South. These, we need to be separated because there's somehow we don't want to touch. We don't have any contact. And the law is institutionalized. You think about Jesus not being able to touch the leper. You guys, I'm sure, in Young Life told that story. Mm-hmm. They made that a law. And so that those kinds of things, laws uh, is another way. And that, um, that happens, of course, in American culture. And then last one is the road. This is the most famous, is that they built a road uh, around Samaria. If you're trying to come from the south to the north, if you're going from Lakewood to Puyallup, they made a road called I-5, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. And, and they, they made a road. So everybody just got on that road. Yeah, it was inconvenient. It wasn't as fast. It was 100 miles out of the way. But it, the road institutionalized the assumption that we shouldn't touch, we shouldn't have contact, they're dangerous, we could get hurt, uh, we don't know who they are. And mm-hmm. so, so in the end, uh, it just became a, um, a, a regular, unchallenged assumption. And maybe you can, and I, can you think of other examples, I mean, uh, roads in, in, you know, in, our, in our time that divide neighborhoods? I think of, you know, for sure the hilltop in, in downtown. Yeah. Mm-hmm. you know there's yeah. there's mm-hmm. roads that make it really easy that you never have to drive through yeah. the hilltop. Um, it's so true you know i'll give another example of where i was born and raised for the first part of my life you know i'm from bronx new york I was born in bronx new york and there is um you know in the 70s if you are familiar with new york you know you had the idea that the bronx is burning it's because of all the uh, building fires and all the 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 violence that was happening in Bronx, New York in the 70s and was one of the most dangerous places in the world to live. And quite frankly, you brought up Hilltop in the 80s. You know, Tacoma was the murder capital of the United States per capita. Um, You know, and there are people that avoided the Bronx, New York, right? There's people who uh, began to move into these areas of New York that were much nicer, that were were much more trendy. And even now that still persists to some degree, to some degree, you know, um, the gentrified areas of Brooklyn, the gentrified areas of Tacoma. Um, I've also lived in Las Vegas, Nevada, where um, I remember doing ministry in a community, um, the Williams district, um, you know, the area, one third of all the murders that happened um, in the area where I did, excuse me, one third of all the murders that happened in the city of Las Vegas happened in the area where I did ministry. Um, And when I look back at the history of that, you know, they they would move families from the nicer parts of Las Vegas into 
this area when they wanted to brighten up another area. And I remember at the time when I was moving from Las Vegas, they actually were revitalizing or gentrifying um, our neighborhood. And they started moving those same families they just moved in a couple of years prior, they would move into other areas of town because they wanted to beautify the neighborhood. You're not actually really dealing with a problem. Um, you're just you're just pushing it off to it kicking off, the right. can down the road um, and not really dealing with the actual problem that people have. And, and, you know, this is on the road to racial reconciliation and, and we're probably getting a little bit into classism, um, not just race, but I do believe it all blends together because once again, this idea that we paint people as other and then we can justify now what we do to them and the systems that we build um, that hinder them and hurt them. And it just continues to perpetuate itself over time. That's it. And, and so, you know, just to kind of transition here from our story in John to the story uh, today and our guest, uh, Eddie, I would just say that growing up and, and, and looking at the scripture from an individualistic perspective, I didn't initially see that Jesus's care for this Samaritan woman yeah. embedded him in caring about the institutional realities that, that were put, keeping her in bondage. Yeah. And so that reframes the way I see even just the events of this last year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Jesus doesn't just care about, you know, Rodney King or George Floyd. We can list the individual names, but he, but it's moved us as a nation, I think, to see that, that maybe God also, does he care about police violence, railing? You know, then you go deeper, you know, into what about the other institutional sin real corporate sin realities of our time, like, you know, um, unjust prison sentencing for black folks. You know, yeah. you mentioned gentrification, disparity mm-hmm. in school funding. How about in the past? Did God care? You know, did Jesus care about the Jim Crow laws and the yeah. redlining or the segregation mm-hmm. of the slavery? Mm-hmm. But the fact that our country had a constitutional line in it, you know, that the black person is, you know, three fifths of a person. Yeah. These things mattered to jesus and that's a, that shapes the way that i hear the gospel mm-hmm. uh and respond to it in my in my life now you know yeah. in this in this season of our history yeah so many things we could make a list and i think that uh this is a perfect opportunity to throw to our interview your interview with corn our friend cornelius williams now we did this interview a little bit different typically we've sat together and we've talked with our guests as we've uh, unpacked these ideas. Uh, but you interviewed Corn separately, and the interview was really good. It was amazing. Great job, John. Great job, Cornelius. Uh, our friend Cornelius goes by Corn. Um, so if you hear us call him Corn, that's why. Um, and we actually broke it up into two parts. So we're actually going to pause our conversation right now. We're going to parachute into your conversation, part one of your conversation with Cornelius Williams. Then we're going to come back add a couple of thoughts. And then to close out this podcast, we're going to end with part two, because uh, really Cornelius Williams did a great job of closing out of a podcast. And I just thought there's no need for you and I to jump back in and talk. Uh, when you listen to the, the final minutes of his second half of his interview, you guys are going to love it. So Sounds good. Check, yeah, check out this interview with John Lewis and Cornelius Williams right now. Well, this is uh, John Lewis talking to Cornelius Williams uh, in Atlanta, Georgia. Hey, Corn, how you doing? Man, great, John. Great, great to be with you. Yeah, thank you for joining us. And we're doing this portion of the On the Road to Racial Reconciliation podcast mm-hmm. separate from the normal flow of beginning to end. Corn was available at this time, so I'm going to go ahead and and introduce Corn, and then we'll jump into a couple questions on our topic today. So, Corn, love for you to just introduce yourself 
you know, briefly, maybe through the lens of, um, you know, how in your calling you have been drawn mm. in, shoved in, uh, called into this, this journey of your faith intersecting racial reconciliation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you, John. I would probably say by way of introduction is, and it also probably can help why I was drawn into this conversation is, you know, I was raised in Tacoma, Washington, in a blue collar town on the east side of Tacoma. And for those of you that are listening, if you know anything about that area, um, it's working class and it's pretty diverse um, on that side of town. Um, I went to Lincoln High School there in Tacoma where I came to faith by going, being introduced to uh, Billy Graham. I went to hear Billy Graham. And then two weeks after committing my life to Jesus, being a follower of Jesus, I smoked weed and realized I had too much time on my hands. And I went back to, I had been introduced to Young Life. So I started going to Young Life. And then my Young Life leader started meeting with me. And over the course of being a leader and being working in ministry on the east side of Tacoma at Lincoln High School and then at Mount Tahoma High School, you know, deeply committed to this idea of indigenous leadership. Mm -hmm. So my faith and this conversation around ethnicity, leadership, and ministry, uh, mm -hmm. they go hand in hand. Absolutely. And that kind of took you from you know, you, you start mentioning your commitment to indigenous leadership and faith and, yeah. and you know, that started yeah. in Tacoma, took you to Portland, Oregon, yeah. where you're on staff, and now you're working with Resurgence. Uh, yep. the director in of, yeah, in Atlanta, Leadership Foundation's affiliate and committed to bringing people to the table, you know, a, a social, uh, you know, people's social good, their spiritual good, weaving together in the context of uh, people of diverse faith backgrounds. And so, Obviously, you know, in Atlanta is a city with a deep-rooted heritage, you know, of black population and racism. So yep. I'm looking forward to, to jumping into a question here. Um, so when you think um, about what's going on in your city, could you say something about what you feel like are some of the institutional challenges facing pe people of color? And maybe just to give a little background, which I should have done ahead of time, is that the theme of this particular podcast um, is how the role of institutions and systems in yeah. communities can willingly or unwillingly perpetuate, you know, racism. Yeah. And obviously you go back to the slave trade, you go back to Jim Crow laws and redlining. I mean, in every, you know, uh, there's lots of examples. Wonder if you could just, as you look at today's reality, you know, um, what do you see as some of the institutional challenges uh, facing this journey of reconciliation today? Yeah, you know, the, the list you were kind of going through, you said them as if to suggest they've gone away. <laughs> <laughs> well, just when they started, you know, they've been yeah, around. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and I, I, one of the things that I do think that is very, very symptomatic of uh, systemic racism down here is around housing. Uh, we're seeing, like many cities, this revitalization of with downtown and closer mm. to the city, and so. Uh, in, in my world, when, like, you know, ministry world, suburban work used to historically equate to upper middle class white communities, hmm. where now, because of the revitalization of cities, 
suburban work <laughs> is actually becoming black and brown and the income is changing. Hmm. Um, I remember, you know, man, you were doing urban work, weren't you, Corn? Yeah, <laughs> city work, because the city was where poor people are. suburban work because of the housing. I think that's one way here. You know, I live in Atlanta, so, you know, there's, there's quite a few blacks down here and whites, um, people still separated um, th that way. Um, I think, man, John, one of the realities around housing, and you know this, it also affects um, education. And so, which, and resources towards populations. And so another thing I see down here is um, the Southern side of the Metroplex has fewer resources right. than the Northern side of the Metroplex, right? And, and say something about that, Corn, because the, the system is set up, right? So that yeah. property taxes pay for That's education. Exactly. And so if the property values are lower, then those schools in those areas will continue to get a lower amount. And again, this is the institutional perpetuation yes. of the problem. And just to highlight what you're saying. Yeah, yeah no, what you, um, I'll say this, like, like I work with kids in Gwinnett County, which is um, northeast of Atlanta, right? And so what's interesting is I was looking at the plan the, for the development, our county plan. And so hmm. uh, if you really, if you really want to see or understand some of the systemic things going on, look at the plan of the county. Hmm. It's, it's public information. So I looked and I looked under what are they doing with housing and what are they doing with urban development? So hmm. I noticed that there was a clear delineation for us down here between this interstate. Yes, interesting. This, it was this interstate, John. It happens all and over in a country. People yes. build interstates to divide. Oh, it's it's a to divide. John, I saw where they're supposed to build this new access road. Where at the end of this access road, where is where they develop they've developed this enterprise zone, and the housing prices at the end of that enterprise zone was at a certain level that could only attract a certain group of people. And then, man, John, let me say this, bro. It was so easy. So they're like, um, down here, so we have a certain uh, churches down here, right, that cater to not only, but to primarily middle to upper middle class whites, right? And so, John, I looked at that plan back in 2014. And, man, by 2016, there were new church plants at the end of that enterprise zone. Be why? Because they looked at and they saw where right. people with money going to yep, be. Yep, yep. Let's go to where our market is and begin to develop. But there was no one going the other way. Yeah, interesting. Bus businesses were leaving. Housing prices were going down, which means that communities that are under-resourced, we're going to continue to stay that way. And it's really goes, it's interesting because is it racial? Is it class? Is it economic? Or is it, yes. <laughs> and so, so John, so um, I would just say, 
um, that housing and also what mm -hmm. I've seen around economic development yeah. have, have not overtly said we're going to continue to perpetuate the racial divide, but indirectly they're contributing to yes. this divide. Now, isn't that interesting? That's what makes it so subtle, right? That's what makes it sometimes yep. hard to diagnose because it doesn't come out and just, you know, officially state we are racist and we are making yeah. these divisions. And so it takes a, a certain level of, um, you know, of sophisticated wisdom, you know, to be able to call a spade a spade. Another question um, we wanted to ask, we know you're knee deep, Corn, and in investing in lives of young people. You and I are working on a partnership, you know, in, yep. in that sphere. Um, you had a real heart for young people. So does leadership foundations across the nation, really around the world. How do you, in the midst of them growing up, experiencing what you did in, you know, at Lincoln and the East Side, you know, how do you help young people grow up in such a way that they can face these realities without being paralyzed by them? Do you know what I'm saying? Without giving, becoming hopeless, how do you empower them to see it and then to enter in to be part of the change agent? Uh, I think the first thing as an older person, for those of you that are listening, I'm 55 years old, and so... Um, I think my first thing is to posture myself as a listener hmm. and not to be presumptuous about coming in here with, here, let me tell you. No, I think, and, and, and my posture is important because I can't invalidate their experience hmm. the way it's coming to them because it's different. Hmm. Case in point, my son or my daughter might be angry. So my youngest son who's 23 Right. So for eight of his years, he the president of our country was black. Different experience. Different experiences. You know, he you know, now he's a part of a generation that has also seen the first woman vice president who happens to be um, a person of color. And so and so when they come with their anger or disenchantment, I can, I have to suspend my filter and listen to theirs. And mm -hmm. so that's one thing that's posture is really important to yeah. not invalidate their experience and listen to them and try to understand um, their point of view. And then I think it's um, creating a safe space to think aloud about how we can begin to address this, to allow them to be um, um, participants. Yeah, and which is which, related to your idea of just listening, right? So by, yeah. you, by asking, by listening, you're already inviting yeah. them to be a participant, to take ownership. And maybe that's not an easy thing to create, you know, yeah. people who feel like they're on the margin or feeling like they're, they're suffering the consequences of systemic racism. Yeah. And John, what I would say is that, you know, to those that are listening and you're kind of going, but man, corn, that's not going to solve the problem today. Right. Um, that's not going to solve the problem today. And, and it's real because there's a sense of urgency. We got to attack it. And so there's this other thing too, by allowing for instantaneous expressions of anger or disappointment. I, I have to allow space for that. Man, that ain't working. We need to do something. And so, you know, we saw that with the marching and whatnot. Right. And so that's, 
that's important, but we also have to then kind of say, hey, what are we doing to address this systematically too? Hmm. So sometimes you get a either or, but it's a both right. and, and yeah. um, be, because it's, it's going to take a little long. And so I'd say that, and the other thing too is, and you and I were talking about this earlier, I think it's important to try to, you said it so well, John, lift up things to have hope in. Man, because it's almost like you got to wade through it to see, oh, oh, no, this is working. Hmm. This is working. And so like um, case in point, you know, I'm sitting up here, you know, my oldest is 29, my daughter's 28, my son is 20, youngest is 23. You know, there's the social unrest and injustice. And so they're marching, hmm. right? Man, we got to do something. We got to do something. Cool, cool, cool. Man, we got to march. We got to do something. I said, okay, cool. Okay, how else can we begin to address the inequity that hmm. you see? Right. And so, well, okay. And so then there's this... Hmm. Now, then you bring them back to go, hey, you know what? And again, I'm an old fellow, so I'll go back to the Bible. You know, this idea when God just said, kind of like with Moses, man, they out here, these people coming from behind us, they're trying to kill us, you know, in this chariot. We got this Red Sea, you know, out here in front of us, man. What are we going to do, bro? <laughs> hey, man, what's in your hand? What's in your hand? Use what's in your hand and take the first step. Yeah. And so I think that's our Good. role, too, to try to, um, help them to see what's available to them right now, right. whatever they don't have available to them. How can we um, leverage our relationships, make sure they get access, yes. and then give them some incremental steps to begin to address this. I know that was a long answer, but I do no, think that is a, um, a way yeah. that we can give hope. Yeah, in today's world where so many things can, questions can be answered with a click of a button, you can support something on Facebook with a click of a button. What I hear you say, Corn, is that this is, you know, in Eugene Peterson's word, this is a long road, you know, in the same direction, so to speak, uh, and uh, a long obedience of what are the steps, the steps. And I, so in some ways, you're, you're giving people the way of faithfulness to God, you know, and as is hardly ever instantaneous. You think about prayer. John, I'm just jealous that you had that great interview with Corn. Um, man, I love that guy. I met Corn about two, two and a half years ago, and I, I've had a chance to talk to him, man, half a dozen times since then. And so, like I said, I'm really jealous. That was an amazing interview. At, at the end of the interview, he started, uh, and and we're I'm gonna, like I told you guys earlier, we're gonna go back and, and listen to the last few minutes of your guys' interview, um, John. But before we do that, Corn uh, set up a great idea in that second part of the interview. But at the end of this one. He talks about this idea that what did the Lord say to Moses? What's in your hand, right? Like, what are you able to do? Can I tell you something? As I've studied John 4, as I've studied and I've read, and you and I have gone back and forth with the story of Jesus and Samaritan woman and how Jesus responds in a time when re a racial or just in general reconciliation is needed. I, I noticed something about Jesus, John. Ooh. Jesus is either an amazing stumbling block or he's an amazing stepping stone, right? If you look throughout the scriptures to the religious people who were resistant, were obstinate, were stubborn, he was a stumbling block, right? They rejected him. So he was like, hey, uh, you can do this the hard way or the easy way. And you're obviously choosing the hard way. And he's a stumbling block 
to the religious folk, but to the people who need help, to the people who need restoration, Jesus is a stepping stone. And specifically, I would say with the woman at the well and with the people, the villagers of Samaria, he becomes an obstacle remover. He's someone who steps in to our historical messes, our historical or our, our assumptions and narratives we created and our, our corporate and institutional sin that we've developed. And he steps in and he removes the obstacle that's in the way. Because quite frankly, John, that's how you and I start talking, right? Is, hey, we both love Jesus. We both see the pain of the world. Let's have this conversation. That's what Corn's doing. Corn talks about his kids. He talks about um, what's in your hand. What am I able to do now? He, I love his line. I'm an old school guy. Let's go to the scripture, right? He goes, hey, we know we've got the Jesus card uh, going in our favor. We know that there's things we can do that practically that are available right now um, at, uh, at our disposal. Let's step into it. When When we were talking about this idea, John, you asked me a question and you said, what does it mean to be a stepping stone? What does it practically mean to be a stepping stone? And, and I think immediately two things come to my mind, John. Number one, Second Chronicles 714, right? If my people who are called by my name. As believers, number one, I think it's, it's, it's okay to repent. It's not just okay, it's important. It's important to repent and lament. First things first, let's lay down our opinions. Let's lay down our assumptions. Let's lay down the narratives and institutions we built up in our head. These, these things that we've repeated, let's lay them down and let's come to the Lord. Because, because when we go back to this Old Testament, he's writing to the people of Israel, right? He's saying, yo, you guys got to get this together. We as Christians, as believers today, we are grafted into the seed of Abraham. We're part of this greater family. So as believers, we come to the Lord and we say, Lord, help us, help us change our hearts, change our minds to move forward. And then number two, yo, I mean, this is the hard part. I mean, not that that first part's easy, but but there needs to be an honest assessment of what we are doing and what, how we have participated in these systems. And let's start addressing how we can change. Um, in the context of Young Life, um, I'll give a very practical example. Over the last two years, our area, Lakewood Silicon Young Life, We've made diversity a priority. We've strategized and said, hey, who do we need to bring into the room to help us see our blind spots and see what we can't see? Who do we need to ask questions of? Where do we need to be humble and submit ourselves <clears throat> to more instruction, more ideas, and more leadership? And in the last part of your interview with Corn, he talks about this. And he, he, he says one word. I'm not going to steal his thunder. He talks about this one word and this one idea of that it takes to begin to be a stepping stone. My word's not his, but to move forward. And so that's why we wanted to save this part of the interview for the end. And really, actually, Corn didn't know this, but at the end of every one of these podcasts, right, I've said, let's keep the conversation going. Uh, John, as you and Corn were talking, he kind of said the same thing at the very right. end. And I just thought that was awesome. So we have a final chunk of an interview with Cornelius Williams down in Atlanta. We're not going to come back after this. Cornelius just hits the nail on the head so perfectly. There's no need for us uh, to say any more. But friends out there, thank you again for listening to On the Road to Racial Reconciliation podcast. Check out this last part of our interview with Cornelius Williams. And in the meantime, keep the conversation going. Well, Corn, I'd love to uh, ask you one last question related, uh, going back to that st uh, the story we introduced earlier today, the, the Samaritan 
road, so to speak, that Jesus took. He just went off the beaten track. He went uh, a radical way, so to speak, with his disciples in his time to bring the issue to first and foremost to their attention. And so I think, uh, you know, Eddie and I are wondering just uh, in light of this new season um, of awareness, of public um, engagement uh, at a variety of different levels around Black Lives Matter. Um, uh, there have been all kinds of things, you know, riots and uh, movements and marches. And uh, as you think now in your chair, as somebody who's taking leadership in your city and in, in this movement of leadership foundations, how do you how do you see the church stepping out in a, mm -hmm. in a time appropriate way? What is it that we need to be thinking about perhaps, you know, an age old practice, but perhaps maybe a new emphasis that seems to be fitting for the church to be the church as a leader in this journey towards racial reconciliation, anything that, you know, stands out for you. Oh man, John, there's always things. Um, I, there's a word that really um, resonates with who I am. And so, what I'm going to, how I'm going to answer, I cannot prescribe for everybody. Um, so I just right. offer that. Of course. One, one, one of the things, like I think earlier when you were talking about the woman at the well and how we need to all create those places where she and his, my word, John, is this, access. It's access. Mm. And this woman, this Samaritan woman, um, because Jesus showed up in her world on her terms, even though he was tired, even though it was out of the way and inconvenient and, you know, counter-cultural, um, she had access to God Almighty. Mm -hmm. The other thing, too, I'll make one more uh, biblical reference, and then I'll get very practical. It's one of the things that, um, that we're going back to access that really stands out to me and I love it, and I can't remember what gospel it is. It may be Matthew, but it says that when Jesus had committed his spirit, the, the veil was torn. Hmm. And John, that I think is, I think it's pretty significant. It's you know, you read that and kind of go, "What's the big deal?" It's access. It's access to the holies of holies. And yeah. so, um, I would say that we, those of us that are in positions of influence need to continue to leverage our relationships and our schedules and our um, energies to create access to those um, who need to be at the table engaging in conversation. Well, you know, you're, as you share that, Corn, I'm thinking about our theme of institutional systemic sin, so to speak. And essentially what you, what you shared about earlier was that we, we stop giving people access through education yeah. or through economic, all the issues of a system yep. is a, it can be boiled down back to this issue of removing access, you know, to places of influence and opportunity. I like that. That's really makes sense. Yeah. And the way I do that, John, is I try to build leadership incubators. Hmm. Uh, I, I think, you know, when we think about um, this idea of racial reconciliation, um, it's interesting is, do people come to the table as equals, hmm. as fellow humans, right? Or what are, what are the things that we lead with? Are we leading with our education? Are we leading with our job? Are we leading with our humanity, right? 
unfortunately, you know, we need to um, create those tables, which is access to tables where people can be treated like the humans that God created. Um, you know, and, and, you know, and in creating those tables to suspend judgment when people come um, suspicious. You right. know, that we, you know, um, so I, I think that's important. Um, well, that's access. so easy, easy to do when you have a polarized, you know, uh, media world, right, Corn? I mean, everything about polarization, you know, Republican, Democrat, black, white, creates a sense of suspicion because we don't have proximity with each other. So what I'm hearing you say is get people to come together, be together, and create environments where people have access not only to resources but to each other. And yep. in some ways, laying down the the unnecessary barriers we put up around suspicion because we actually get to know the person's name and story. Yeah. John, you know, when you go to the woman at the well story, um, she was suspicious. <laughs> she was. <laughs> the first thing, man, what, you, John, for the sake of our audience, won't you tell them what the first question she asked? Why first, are you? Yeah. Well, why yeah. are you here at this well? Why are you talking yeah. to me? Why are you talking to me? I'm a, I'm a, I'm a woman and I'm that, a Samaritan. Why are you, you, this, you must have an agenda. <laughs> that John, out the gate, suspicion. I right. mean, out the gate, right. suspicion. And the, I remember years ago when I was a young little communicator, I was talking of using the story and my theme was continue the conversation. Hmm. You know, man, you know, his suspicion. So the ethnicity right away. Why are you talking to me, man? You've been, I mean, John, hmm. well, I'm sure as you guys are exploring this conversation, how many times is, is that the first thing that's either said or thought? Right. Why am I here? Why do you want to talk to me? I don't right. want to talk to you. Right. You're red. I'm blue. You're black. I'm white. Yeah. You know, you from over there. I'm from over here. Blah, 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 blah. Man, yeah. some of us have to show up in other people's world knowing that they're going to be suspicious of our very presence mm. and not allow their articulated suspicion to keep us from having the conversation. That is not easy. We need to be very prayerful and intentional yes. with whom and where we do that. But some of us have to lead the way, John, because yes. we have to point back to it because people have to know it's possible. Mm. And so you're talking about creating models, and that's how we know something's yep. possible, right, Gordon? Yep. And, and theoretically, yep. when you hear Jesus say something like, you're the light of the world, you're the salt of the earth, there's this invitation for the church to be out in front, right? To be yep. modeling this, I mean, the communion table, right? We ought to be creating tables for a communion of a variety of people. And yet the church has ended up as an institution here now. We, you know, the institutional sin of the church can be is that we, we have... We have lived and absorbed maybe some of the assumptions of the culture, which is it's better if I'm with my own people. And so yep. I know I didn't grow up in a church that really had, you know, that was giving us access to those kind of conversations and challenging my assumptions. And so the church institution, whether we set out to do it or not, we actually perpetuated some of the very struggles that, you know, we're wrestling with now around racism and the lack of really knowing each other. Yeah, that's good. Anything you want to just say at the end here that, you know, you would want to say to people listening to this in this conversation? Yes, I would. Um, one of the hardest things that God 
might require of some of us is that we'll have to abdicate our comfort, our position in the best interest of making sure that there's an eradication of something different. Um, John, like I'm thinking about 2120, hmm. right? Which would be my granddaughter's grandchildren. And hmm. so what institutionally do I need hmm. to see different? What do I need to be doing today? And one of the practical ways I do that is I'm trying to make sure that um, the people that I'm in conversation with and in initiatives, we are raising up more people of color hmm. who are in positions to run enterprises. But it's not just enough to be people of color. They have to know that they are trying to get into positions to oversee enterprises so that they can create a world that's better for all of humanity. Hmm. That's good. It's not easy, John. That is, that's, well, that, that, well, that's a know. long view, but it has well, to start somewhere. You know, you, and we, that's kind of where we started some of this conversation is that this has been a long journey for you, that your kids yep. are learning that this isn't going to be a couple of marches and then, and then it will all be over. And so if it took this many decades and centuries for institutions to embed racism and the lack of access, you know, consciously or not, you know, how long, it's going to take a while, you know, to undo that. And so our, do we have the commitment and the fortitude and the conviction That's right. That's you know, right. to be in this? And certainly, you know, being in it together is going to be crucial, which gives me a great appreciation to be, you know, joining with you, Corn, and our work together and, and the revival and renewal of our friendship. Thank you for taking time to be with us, to yep. share your story, your convictions. Best wishes to you yep. in Atlanta there as you're you're in your own very important way, helping others on this road to racial reconciliation. God bless you, man. Thanks, Corn. Amen.